Hi, everybody. It's John Dickerson. Welcome or welcome back to the Connection Point podcast. At the end of this episode, I'd encourage you to take a moment and check out cp.news on your web browser. Connection Point is a church that is fully online, and you can follow Jesus one day at a time from anywhere in the world with us. Well, I pray this message inspires you and challenges you today to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Hey, you guys want to celebrate what God's doing over in Carmel? He's using you. And I know he's going to use our obedience, our faithfulness to reach thousands of people there in Hamilton County in his timing. Hey, welcome over in Avon. We're so glad you're with us. Whether you're here in Brownsburg at Avon or online, I just want you to know today how much God loves you. And we're so honored that you've chosen to seek God today by being with us. I believe he's really got a special word for you today from the Bible, from his word. We're wrapping up this series called The Bright Side. And it's really been about the power that you have to change your life by changing your thinking. And this is true for everyone, but it's especially true for followers of Jesus. We learned from Philippians 2 that Jesus lived the dynamic world-changing life he lived because of the way he thought. Yes, he's fully God, but he was also fully human. And his thoughts led him to make the choices he made which have benefited so many other people. Our thoughts are so powerful. I don't know about you in this series, maybe you've gotten kind of motivated to take control of your thought life, have a more positive faith-filled outlook. And if you're anything like me, when I started on that journey, I started like, like a kid who was all pumped up and then I had a really bad day and I kind of went from like, I can do this to no way. I can't do this. I don't know if you relate to that or not. There's an old TV show called The Office. There's a character in there named Michael Scott. He's the office manager. It's a different kind of humor. You might not be into the kind of humor. It's not like tell a joke kind of humor. It's show how silly people can be at their core kind of humor. And there's a day where Michael Scott, the manager, he has a day like this where he starts off and he's like, this is going to be the best day ever quickly takes a turn for the worse. This isn't long, but feel free to chuckle as you watch. This is going to be a very good year. Very good. This is the worst. I declare bankruptcy! I am running away from my responsibilities. What is happening? Oh God, what is happening? All right, so it's a little silly, but it's very much what we're talking about. Our mindset in a given day, it affects our relationships, our career, our self-view, everything. And we looked at this kind of visual of your attitude or your outlook, and this sand layer at the top is where we started in this series. It's choosing to have an optimistic outlook, really, as believers, a faith-filled outlook, It's that sand layer being full of scripture and promises from God that he works everything for good, that he's looking out for you, et cetera. But last week, we went a little bit deeper into ourselves, this reality that under that sand layer, there's a foundation that each of us have. And the ideal outlook, the healthy outlook, rests on these foundational building blocks where you could authentically say, I know and feel that I am loved. 
I know and feel that I'm accepted. I know and feel that I'm valuable, that I'm provided for, that I'm pursued. And yet this reality that for most of us, some of those blocks are broken. An overcoming outlook, it's more than just faith in that upper level, which is really our circumstances. It's also faith in that deeper level. In other words, faith to believe what God says about you. Even if what God says about you is different than how you feel or different than what you were told when you were growing up. Recently, I've come across a new hero of mine. He's living proof that you can control your attitude no matter the circumstances. And he's living proof of the power through a relationship with Jesus to lift our outlook way up above our circumstances. His social media handle is at digital underscore preacher. He's a brother in Christ whose body is kind of wrecked by sickness and brokenness in this fallen world. And yet, as you're going to see, his attitude really models exactly what we're learning in this series. Open your heart and have a look. Guys, hope you don't mind. I'm just going to pray for you all really quick. Dear Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. Lord, today... Thank you for the situation you put on. Then, no matter how unfamiliar they are, Lord, I thank you for giving it a chance to destroy the plan that you put before us. And I thank you that you give us a chance to lean on you as well as the people you around us. Lord, I just want to pray for anyone watching this video. May they know that they are supported, loved, and they can get through any situation as long as they trust in you and the plan that you have for them. Lord, I thank you for watching over us physically, mentally, but most of all spiritually and as long as we remember that you are there there is no hardship we can't overcome it's in jesus name i pray amen what if you could have that kind of outlook in your circumstances uh, if he can have that kind of outlook in his circumstances through his relationship with Christ, the same thing is available to you today through your relationship with Christ. Uh, most of us, myself included, we don't have that robust, that sturdy of an overcoming attitude or healthy outlook, do we? And I think a big part of the why is that foundation layer. I shared last week about some of those broken foundation blocks in my life. These aren't all of the broken foundation blocks in my identity, but these are a few of them. Scarcity mentality, that there'll never be enough. Uh, fear of being abandoned, or more of an assumption that I will. Feeling unworthy, no matter what. And kind of defaulting to this mindset that it's me against the world. Those are a few from my life. Maybe you relate to some of them, maybe you've got some other ones. If we want to be half as faith-filled as that brother we just saw, we've got to see God heal some of those broken foundation blocks in our lives. And that's really what we're going to focus on today. We're 
going to answer this question from the word of God. How can you see God heal the broken foundations in you? Because if you really start to get real about this, and I know it's vulnerable, I know it's scary, but I'd encourage you to go there because the benefits are so worth it. These are things that we can't fix on our own or we would have. They're things that our our spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend or parents, the people who love us, they can't fix these things in us. And I just want to encourage you right now to, to open your heart to God in this time. What if he could heal those deep broken things in you? In my experience, I didn't always even know what they were. But it was just a surrender to say, God, whatever it is that's broken, Will you heal it? I want to encourage you to go there with me today so that you can start to build an overcoming outlook on a sturdier foundation so that you're able to really see your options change in life and your outcomes change. And also so that you don't keep repeating the patterns that broke you, which will end up breaking people around you. Uh, If I could tell you today from the word of God, how to really see healing at that deep level, would you want to know? God speaks to this. I was praying for you all this last week. I hope you guys know how much we love you here. We pray for you. Everything we do here is to help you. And as I was praying, God, what is the best passage from your your word? God brought to mind a very familiar story, but I had never seen before that this story is actually all about identity. It's all about healing those broken foundation blocks. It's the story of a son who messed up big time. In fact, most people call him the prodigal son or the wayward son. Interestingly, the father never calls him that. The father doesn't label him by his mistake, but we have over the years. It's a good way for us to summarize the story. If you're not familiar, the story is that a father had two sons and the younger one essentially said, dad, you're better off to me dead. I don't want to be in relationship with you. I don't want to honor you in any way. I don't even want to be near you, but I want your money. So would you give me my inheritance now? It was a big inheritance. This was a family farm that had grown from generation to generation. And so this younger son takes off with half of the family assets turned into coins of gold, and he goes off to essentially casinos and prostitutes, alcohol, wild living, and he just squanders it. He spends it all. He ends up homeless. He ends up uh, so destitute that he doesn't even have shoes anymore. And the only job he can find is in the mud feeding the pigs, which was in that culture uh, the most shameful position a person could be in. Well, eventually, he decides, verse 18, he says, I will set out and go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy. That is an identity statement. That is a foundation block of life. And yet, he's correct. His foundation is broken. He did it to himself by his choices. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you just make me like one of the servants who, you know, lives in an outbuilding at the edge of the property? I know I don't belong at the family table. I know my inheritance is gone, but could I just be a servant 
on the farm. Here's the key verse, verse 20. So he got up and went. This is the, the hinge of the story. It's a story that Jesus is telling because he wants us to understand the heart of God for you and for me. And the story wouldn't turn out the way it turns out if not for this moment. And I point that out because your story also has a turning point. Or it doesn't. Depending on whether or not you, in your heart, say, I'm, gonna, I'm going to go to my Father, my Heavenly Father, to fix what I can't fix. I love the second part of verse 20. While he, the son, was still a long way off. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You know that you have a perfect father in heaven, your creator, and he sees you today. How does he feel about what you're going through? Jesus tells us he's filled with compassion. Those deep broken things in your life, they break his heart too. He's just waiting for you to get up and move toward him with that brokenness. I love this. The father runs to the son. Culturally, these patriarchs, they didn't run. But this father runs because his emotion, his love overtakes him. He throws his arms wide, wraps his son in a hug, and starts to kiss him. This son said to the father, Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here's who I am. At the deepest level, I've messed up. I'm broken. And he's correct about that. And what's so fascinating about this story is there's nothing this son could do in his life to fix what he broke in his life. And there's some things in your life that other people broke or you broke, and there's nothing you can do to fix it. But there's one being in the universe who can, if you'll run to him. Here's how the father responds, verse 22, when the son says, I'm not even worthy, I've messed up so much. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. This is, in this culture, a symbol of honor. It's the father's own symbol of honor, and he's going to wrap it around to cover the son's shame and transform his identity. He says, put the family signet ring on his finger. In other words, he's saying, I know I'm not worthy to be in the family anymore, but just let me be a servant. Treat me like a slave. The father says, no, you are my son. Transformation of identity. He's been homeless. He sold off his shoes somewhere for a meal. And the father says, you're provided for when you come to me with your needs. God brought you here today to tell you this. Listen closely. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been through, God is waiting to redefine you. How does he redefine you? If you come through faith in Christ to the Father today with a sincere heart, he says you are honored, you are forgiven, you are family, and that's not just a saying. You have all the rights of family. You are provided for. Do you see how this is a story not only about how Jesus wants us to come to the Father for salvation and eternal life, but for identity, identity transformation, identity healing. This is some good news. Can I get an amen if this is good news for you? 
It's good news for me. It continues, verse 23, the father says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. In other words, and some of you are from families like this, you'd come home and the parent would say, oh yeah, it's fine. And they would not talk to you. It's fine. Silence. Father says, I want to sit down at a table. I want to pass food back and forth. I want to laugh together. I want to tell stories. I want to know you. I pursue you. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to laugh with you. Let's celebrate. Now, if you're anything like me, you think, God, what would you have to celebrate in me? And that's kind of the point. The moment that you come into Christ as your Savior, the Father now sees you through Jesus' glasses, Jesus' lenses, every attribute of Jesus, every truth of Jesus, everything that's good and true about him is now good and true about you. That's what happens when you place your faith in Christ. And the Father celebrates that from eternity past, he created you to be in relationship with him, and now you're home and you're far more healed, you're far more whole than you even realize through Jesus. The father continues, this son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. It's a process. A culture like this, a party like this could be a week, two weeks. It could be three or four weeks. And, and I think there are some of us who are believers that we've run to the Father to forgive our sins, to secure us a place in heaven, but we kind of then went off to the corner of the property. And what we're doing today is we're saying, Father, we're running back to you to redefine every part of our self-view, our identity, those broken foundation blocks. Celebrate us. Teach us who we are in Christ. Father, redefine my identity. He's waiting to heal and help you, but only you can choose if you'll run to him. So that's really our application today. That's our action step today. It's a choice only you can make. Will you run to your perfect father with your deepest wounds surrendered? I know there are wounds in some of our lives that we've never even verbalized to anyone else that's okay. You can bring them to the Father today. I want to encourage you toward this because if you don't go to him to heal these foundations in you, they will continue to limit your entire life. And even though you don't mean to, the patterns that come from those broken foundations will harm and hurt some of the people you love the most. There are some parts of you that can only be healed by your Father in heaven. Let's look back at this kind of visual of these broken building blocks, a few of them from my life. I'm about to get personal. Last week, I shared with you a story about a part of why I sometimes feel alone against the world. It wasn't the worst thing I've been through, and I'm sure it's not the worst kind of thing you've been through. And same thing today. This is a little bit vulnerable, but this is not the worst thing I've been through, and it's not the worst thing you've been through. I share it because I believe that as I walk through this, you're going to start to see how all of this connects in your life. When I was in seventh grade, this kind of explains my scarcity mentality, that there will never be enough to go around. 
Uh, my three older brothers, I mentioned last week, by the way, you can chuckle about this. I'm the youngest of four. I know my parents love me. None of us are perfect as parents. I think by the time I came around, they were just done parenting. They're just done. And I, I you know, I kind of get it. Mel and I have three and we think if we had four, I don't think we could, I don't think we could parent very well for us, our capacity. So, you know, by the time I came around, all three of my older brothers were very successful athletes, varsity teams, starters, etc. And I was always kind of the second string sort of athlete. And when I was in junior high, my older brothers, they were, you know, varsity starters. And so it makes more sense to me now that I'm an adult why my parents weren't at any of my athletic events. It was probably by the time they got done being at my three older brothers ones, they were just like, can't be two places at once, et cetera. So I remember seventh grade, our first away soccer game. I actually played in the game, played pretty well. We get on the bus and we're all tired and we're all hungry. And the bus is on its way home. I think we're just going back to school and the bus pulls in at McDonald's. And I'm like, why are we at McDonald's? Some of the older kids who had been on the team before, they said, oh, we always stop at McDonald's on the way home so everyone can eat. I thought, well, this is going to be awkward. I don't have a I don't have like a lunch sack, I don't have a meal, and I definitely don't have any money. So as we walk in, I start to realize that all my friends, their parents are driving in their personal vehicles along with this convoy, and they all meet up with their parents, and they all get in line. And I just think, there's no point in me being in line. I I have nothing. So I just go sit at a table. And eventually some of my friends come with their food, and I bum some fries off of them. And in the big scheme of things, probably not that big a deal. But to a 12-year-old, in a really just impressionable season of life, I thought, I'm never going to allow myself to be in this situation again, where everyone else has food and I don't, where I just feel so embarrassed and so singled out. Uh, You probably think, like, well, why don't you just tell your parents when you get home? Well, my parents told me when I was a kid, never ask for anything. They literally said that, and I obeyed them. So I didn't. And they weren't the kind of parents to say, how was the game? How did it go? Did you ever eat dinner? They just, they just didn't do that kind of stuff. So I knew that if the next game, I would either have to plan ahead and pack stuff from home and be the one kid who has like a paper lunch, or I'd have to go mow some lawns for my neighbors and save the money and just make sure that I always have money. And that's when I started my little lawn care business. Within two years, I had $2,000 in the bank. And I became this very frugal, (laughs) I had my first E-Trade account when I was 17. Because I just decided, that's a stock trading account, by the way. I just decided, like, I'm I'm never going to be without again. It just got seared in my identity. And you know what? It actually served me really well for quite a while. Because I was a really hard worker and I was really frugal. Graduated college at age 20. I had put myself through college. My parents didn't help. Zero dollars of debt. By age 23, had my first house in Scottsdale, Arizona. Had a three-year-old car that was paid off. Had no debt. Great savings. Great job. And I was provided for. And everything seemed good. And then I got married. (laughs) Now, the reason I think people are laughing is that the monthly fight over finances is a very common fight in marriage. 
And here's the irony, Mel's actually fantastic with money. I mean, uh, we shopped at the Goodwill for like the first 10 years of our marriage. She's not a, a hyper spender. She's very careful with money. The problem was my coping with my brokenness worked fine when John was flying solo. But the moment I had to share life with someone else, there's no one else who could be quite as afraid, quite as frugal, operate from quite as much of a scarcity mentality as me. And so I want to talk to you about what's called a presenting problem versus a foundational problem. Presenting problem, we fight about money every month. And for probably the first six years of our marriage, I thought that's all it was. And that she was wrong and I was right all the time, of course. <laughs> Which I was wrong about. <laughs> if you're fighting about money every month in your marriage, it could be that one of you has that scarcity mentality. It could also be that one of you has some other broken thing and overspending retail therapy is your way of coping with some other broken thing. And that's why you fight about money every month. My, my point is this, there's a difference between your presenting wound and your foundational wound. So for me, that presenting wound, scarcity mentality about money, really went back to, if, if you take the metaphor of moving a couch, ideally it's a two-person job, and there's a meme going around the internet of the stubborn, self-dependent person who insists on moving the couch by themselves. That was me. I'd never had someone pick up the other end of the couch in my life. And now there was a person like that in my house and I did not know how to accept that. I was a perfectionist to the point that I would just work to physical breakdown. And part of that was that in those imprinting years of early life, no one had provided for me in certain situations when I was in need. Mel couldn't heal these things in me. Only God could. I had to learn, and th at this point, I'd been to seminary, I could read ancient Greek, I had memorized a bunch of the Bible, I had even left my good job to take less money as a pastor, had taken all these steps, and yet I knew these truths about God, but I had yet to invite him in and say, God, I need you to be my perfect father. Show me what it means that you're my provider. And he did give me choices to make. Just like that prodigal son, will you move toward him? He's going to give you some choices to make in your brokenness where you have to let go of your old coping to say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you for healing. So decades of feeling alone, being a perfectionist, feeling like I'll never have enough resources. Lucky Mel, she got to marry that guy. Inability to have healthy conflict, perfectionist, which I shared last week, being a perfectionist in your relationships is about the worst thing you can do. It's corrosive to your relationships. God worked in those areas not because I was smart, but he gently worked on me because I was surrendered. And, and this is an important word for some of you today. I believe God gave me a wife who isn't afraid of conflict because she was part of his plan for healing me. And for about the first five or six years of marriage, I didn't think that. I just thought, I can't stand being around this person anymore. What have I done? Because there was so much pain being triggered in me by having a person living that close to me. Presenting wounds versus foundational wounds, unable to have marriage conflict. Well, no one had ever really in my life pursued me in conflict before. My life 
pattern had been, if there was conflict with someone, I could ride my bike away or drive my car away, and they wouldn't come after me. And then the conflict would be done. I'd move on to something else. But Mel would always come after me. I didn't know what to do with that. Started to realize when I became a pastor that I was paralyzed by conflict in the workplace. I know it's hard to believe, but Christians can sometimes disagree with each other. And I started with a church of 40 people, and they were used to voting on every single decision. So you can imagine for a 28-year-old with all these issues how well I handled that. I'd never really seen healthy conflict resolution. If God hadn't given me a wife who is so much more comfortable with conflict than I was, I would never have been forced to ask God to heal these broken things in me. And I want to say a word to those of you who are married and you're in a tough season. If your spouse is a believer, if your spouse isn't beating you, verbally abusing you, physically cheating on you, there are some biblical grounds for separation or even divorce. But if your spouse is just another broken person like you and me and they're doing their best, but they're not perfect, there's a good chance that your pain point with your spouse actually connects to something in you that is way deeper than your spouse. Something in you that started before you even met your spouse. And maybe you haven't realized that, but God might just be using this imperfect believer in your life to force you to open up some areas that you would never otherwise open up because they're so painful. And if you're in that spot and you just check out and you divorce and you get away from that pain, guess what? You're going to take it right into your next relationship. And after a few years, you'll find yourself right in the same place. Here's some presenting wounds versus foundational wounds that I've seen over the years in others. We've all got them. I've seen uh, people who refuse to forgive a spouse. And as you hear their story, you realize they were abandoned by a parent. And they're punishing this spouse who's maybe the same gender as the parent who abandoned them. And they don't even realize that they're taking out all this brokenness on their spouse. I've met people who have self-defeating talk. In other words, they just say, I knew I'd fail. I always fail. I knew I'd drink again. I knew I wouldn't get the promotion. It is just the default soundtrack of their mind. And often that's because growing up, that's what they heard. I knew you'd mess up. I knew you wouldn't do it. Maybe verbal abuse. I want you today to meet your perfect father as the one who can meet your deepest unmet needs. Be humble enough to acknowledge you have deep unmet needs and have just enough faith to say, Father, I want to experience you as the one who can heal those. Why? Well, here's why. You'll never consistently live in a way that contradicts your true view of yourself. I see this with uh, recreational league soccer coaching. If you get a kid who thinks they're terrible and they're convinced that they're bad at soccer, and somehow they get in a play and the ball bounces off of them and goes into their own goal and they score, and everyone's like, look at you, you're better than you thought. They're going to walk away and they're going to explain it away and say, no, I'm not. That was just a fluke. Versus the child who's got a healthy parent, healthy coach, and is being told, you're valuable, do your best, you've got skills. That child scores the goal, and they're like, I knew I could do it. 
You will not live consistently in your life in a way that contradicts your view of yourself. And this really matters. If you say, I just can't forgive that, that's a limiting statement. If you tell yourself you can't forgive that, then you're not going to forgive that. But God's forgiven it. And he commands us, forgive others as I've forgiven you. So when we say, I just can't forgive that, what we're actually saying is, I don't believe God. I believe my feelings more than I believe God. And that's going to limit your life. You absolutely can forgive that in Christ. I know only through the power of Christ. You say, I'm not good enough. Who says so? Your stepdad? Satan himself says you're not good enough. He's known as the accuser of God's people. If you're in Christ, God says you're good enough. You're more than good enough. You belong at the table and you're celebrated. John the disciple, if anyone could have harbored resentment and unforgiveness, he was one. Because Peter, James, and John, they were Jesus' three closest disciples, his inner circle. And John, we know from the gospel of John, was a very emotional man. He was a feeler. And you think of that, that final night when Judas betrays Jesus. If you imagine having your closest friends and one of them betrays the leader of the group to the point of death. And then your next closest friend denies him. Remember, Peter starts swearing up a storm. I don't know the guy. I'm not with the guy. John, the disciple, could have harbored bitterness, resentment, anger towards Judas and Peter for the rest of his life. And we all know someone like that. The only reason he didn't is that he looked to Jesus to be perfect where his closest friends had failed him. Your spouse is going to fail you. Your family's going to fail you. Other believers are going to fail you. Look to Jesus to be perfect where those others fail you. Here's what John writes in 1 John 3. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. I love that word lavished. Do you realize that your father in heaven, his love for you right now as he pours out his love on you, it's not conservative, it's not stingy, it's not measured. He dumps the bucket. I'm lavishing my love on you. What does that love accomplish? It accomplishes a transformation of your identity that you are now a child of God. You know, we're dangerously familiar in our culture with these words, God the Father and child of God. But in Jesus' era, these were radical words. These were blasphemous words. This is part of why the religious people crucified him. God is the one creator. How, how dare, how could we say he's our father and we're his kids? Well, we can because Jesus said that, but this was revolutionary. And I love what John says. This is an identity statement at the end of 1A here. He says, that is what we are. In other words, John himself knew as he's writing to the very first generation of Christians in the New Testament, I know you might not feel like you're God's kid. I know you probably don't fully understand your new identity, but that is what you are. You're overwhelmingly loved by your perfect father in heaven. 
I love this historic photo of President John F. Kennedy at his desk in the Oval Office. And there's his son peeking out from this little secret passage that was built into the desk. Cool thing. This is where God wants you, in his Oval Office. I mean, think about this. The nuclear codes are on that desk. That desk controlled, especially at that time, the most powerful military, the largest economy, the world superpower. What is a kid doing in there? Kids don't belong in there unless it's their father. Dear friends, now we are children of God. This is who you are. This is your identity. Receive it. Absorb it. Ask God to help you comprehend it and to start to live from it. And it's a process. What we will be when we become like Christ, we don't fully understand, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. I said it earlier, the moment you believed in Jesus, every attribute of Jesus now applies to you. The Father sees you through Jesus' lenses. You don't see yourself that way yet. When Christ returns and you get to heaven, you will. And until then, it's a journey of faith, of growing to see ourselves the way God sees us. You see, your view of God shapes your life more than any other thing. And it's your view of God that will really open up the passageway for God to get into those deep foundations in your life and perform some healing that no one else could. And our view of God, I believe, from the moment we believe in Jesus until we get to heaven in an ideal relationship, it's ever-expanding, it's growing. It's kind of like the process of a butterfly turning from a caterpillar, going into that cocoon, and eventually emerging transformed. We looked at Romans 12, verse 2 on week one of this series where God says, don't be shaped by this world, but be renewed, be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, by changing the way you think. That word be transformed is the Greek word metamorphizo, metamorphosis. You look at this butterfly, and if you were to watch this in real time, it's a little bit painful because the butterfly, when it comes time for it to emerge, it really has to wrestle and writhe its way out of that cocoon. There was once a scientist had a little bit of compassion and thought, what, what if I were to take a surgeon's scalpel, slice the edge of the cocoon so that this butterfly doesn't have to go through this painful ordeal of fighting its way out? The result was that that butterfly was never able to fly and the learning that it's that very struggle that strengthens the muscles of the wings. There's a purpose for the struggle. If you cut it out, it won't fly. It has to fight its way out. From now till heaven, we beat our little wings. Struggling one day at a time in every insecurity, in every moment of lack, in every difficult situation to say, Father, it hurts. Who am I in Christ? Show me who I am as a new creation. And you, you wrestle toward that. You beat your wings toward that. And one day you emerge as someone that you never thought 
you could be. There's some stuff you're going through right now. You're just going to have to fight your way out of it. But where you've been fighting your way out of it by controlling the situation, work smarter, not harder. <laughs> Start to fight your way out by saying, Father, with grit, I want you to fix what's broken in me. With grit and dedication and follow through, I want to see myself the way you see me. You see, that very struggle, that very unmet need in your life is in fact your greatest opportunity to experience your father to be for you what no one else and nothing else has been for you. When I've been the most vulnerable, the most alone, when I've really gotten down to those deep things that no one was there for me, and then I've said, God, you're there for me, it has changed me. We're all broken because we're born into these broken identities. Only God can heal this. Genesis 3, here's how it starts. Satan says to the woman, did God really say? So sin, cancer, war, racism, death, rape, famine, corruption, all started with the evil one causing God's children to doubt their identity in him, to doubt that they're secure and safe in him. And then the evil one deceiving and saying, verse 5, if you'll break God's rules, you will be. How's that for an identity statement? You will be like God if you'll go outside of his plan for you. Satan's lie to Eve and to you and me is this. You will be stronger, better, more fulfilled outside of who God says you are. Any attempt to heal that outside of God will end in disappointment. Here's Jesus' truth. You will be the strongest, the best, the most fulfilled you inside the safety and the warmth of who God says you are. My hero who I introduced you to earlier, other people might say negative words about his identity if they were cruel or focused on disability perhaps. And I'm sure just like you and me, Satan whispers doubts to him. Here's another one of his very short prayers. I want you, as you listen to this prayer, receive it for yourself. And also notice how identity is key to having an overcoming attitude. Take a listen. Hey, guys. Hope you don't mind. I'm just going to pray for you all really quick. Dear Lord, thank you for this beautiful day. Lord, I thank you for the confidence that you give us by just watching over us. Thank you that you have faith in us even when no one else does. Lord, I thank you that as long as we believe in you, we have strength to do the impossible. Lord, I pray for anyone watching this video. May they just know that no matter how tough things get, no matter how dark the world seems, you are always there to be a bright light and a beacon of hope. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So powerful. So powerful. This brother is helping more than 30,000 people every day. 
because of his identity in Christ. What you choose to believe about yourself is 100% a spiritual battle. 2 Corinthians 10.5, you'll need to take a picture because I'm going to move fast, but it says we demolish arguments, ideas that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought includes our thoughts about who we are and if we're valuable. It includes where we find our affirmation and our affection. Are we going to look for likes, for clicks, attention from men? Are we going to look to possessions, to a net worth, to a position in this world? Where do you look for your fulfillment, your identity, your security, those deep blocks? Take those thoughts captive. Make them obedient to Christ for your benefit. Well, this series was based on the book, The Winning Attitude. That's where we really started the first two weeks. I just mentioned this quickly because this is the final week of this. So if you haven't got a copy of the book, you can still get one today. I mentioned week one. I've read this, not an exaggeration, 30 times plus in the last 10 years because I was by default such a negative, pessimistic, woe is me, melancholy person. This book has changed the way I think. On your chair, you don't need to look at it right now, but there was a handout. You can take that home with you. It's something you can put up on your bathroom mirror. You can put it in your journal. Any one of these summary points on the outline has the power to set off life-changing healing for you. I'll illustrate that very quickly. Choice number three, write a statement of purpose. So I did that when I was going through the winning attitude. I had never written a life statement of purpose. And I actually, I call mine my daily declarations. And uh, for a number of years, especially as I was redefining my identity, I would read these truths from God about me out loud every day. In fact, I have an audio recording of me reading my daily declarations, which is all about my identity in the Father. And I'll often listen to that when I'm driving into work. I'll turn on the audio, listen to myself reading who I actually am. Sounds crazy, but it has worked. It's changed the way I view myself. I'll give you the first sentence of my daily declarations. Won't surprise you with all the scarcity stories I've told you. Here's how my daily declarations start every day. Who am I? I am an heir to the largest fortune in human history. I've been holding out on you guys. <laughs> Multi-billionaire. It's true. My dad owns it all. I've, I've said this and listened to it, and it's true from Scripture enough that it has actually dripped down through the rocks into the deep parts of my foundation. It has changed that scarcity block to be a block of always enough from my father. This will sound silly, but in the summer, I was visiting a friend at their lake house, beautiful lake house, you know, goes right out to the water. There's all these lake houses around. And I'm standing there kind of thinking and sort of talking to God like I do now. It took me years to, to kind of get to this place. I just talked to him throughout the day. Not always. I'm not like super spiritual. I think about cars a lot too, okay? <laughs> but I'm standing there, I'm thinking like, oh, it'd be kind of cool to have a lake house like this, you know, like maybe when we have grandkids and stuff, it'd be a fun place to, to have the grandkids. And I kind of hear God whisper like, well, look around the lake because I own them all. And here's the difference. 
knowing that my father already owns them all, then I go down the thought path of like, hmm, I wonder what it's like to own a lake house. Like you have to clean all the leaves out of the gutter. You have to bring the dock in every winter, take it out every summer. If it has a basement, it could flood. It's hours away. Start thinking like, what would it actually, now that I know there's no barrier to having one, do I actually want everything that comes with it? And then kind of realizing like, you know, most weekends I'm doing something more important anyway. So I, I don't know. I don't think it's that important, really. Totally different conclusion than if I was living. Now, I'm not saying if you have a lake house, it's bad, okay? It's not bad at all. It's God's. He gave it to you. It's great. Use it. Enjoy it, okay? But I just have this much freer attitude. And here's the great irony. Don't take this the wrong way, but like, the things I've wanted throughout the years where I've said, well, my father owns it. If he wants me to have it, he'll bring it along. He's now placed different friends in my life who have almost all those things. And they'll text or call and be like, hey, John, do you want to drive this car? Do you want to use this house? Do you want to go here or there? And when I do, I think, huh, God, this is, this is great. I don't pay any insurance. I never worry about it. Like, it, it is amazing. And I'm just telling you guys, like, Seek first the kingdom of God. Say, God, I trust what you say about me. I will let go of the things I'm holding on to. And over the course of years, it's radical the way he changes your view of reality. And it is, it's a fulfilling personal life. Here's just a few more lines from my daily declaration. I am always pursued. I'm always wanted. I'm always provided for, and I'm always accepted by my father. What if you really believed that every day of your life? It would change some of the things you do and what motivates you. Well, uh, I took you a little deeper these last two weeks, and when God started working on me on my foundation, he brought a book in my life. You can just snap a picture of this. It's called Abba's Child by Brennan Manning. I'll probably do a whole series on that in the next year or two. I took you deeper these last two weeks, because that's what I had to do in my life. If you look back at this grid, your outlook or attitude, the winning attitude book is really about that top layer. Abba's Child is a great book for that deeper layer. And of course, the Bible speaks to all of it. Well, we're about to close. Next week, I get to kick off a series called The Story of the Universe. In four weeks, we're going to summarize Genesis to Revelation, 66 books of the Bible. Ron and I will be team teaching that. We wanted to let you know, if you don't yet get our Daily Hope, Daily Devotional, you can text the word daily because starting today, it's a three-minute summary of Genesis and then Exodus, Leviticus, all the way up into the middle of December, one book of the Bible at a time, 66 books. So that Daily Hope exercise will last a lot longer than the series. We want to make sure you understand the whole counsel of God's word for you. Well, as we close, if God could heal... One presenting pain in your life. If God would heal today one presenting wound in your life, what would it be? From your marriage or in your finances, in your self-view, what would it be? When I was a kid, there were these things called a Chinese finger trap. And once your finger gets stuck in there, the harder you pull, the tighter it gets. Sometimes you have to release what you've been holding on to to be set free. I didn't see God heal my scarcity mentality by me continuing to stockpile and hold on to everything. It's been a 10-year process. There's probably still some cracks in there, but 
I've had to say, God, if you say to let go, I'm gonna let go. And that's, that's when the healing began. Some of you, you've just been holding so tight to unforgiveness, to resentment, to other things that are logical based on what you've been through. But God can heal that if you'll just loosen your grip a little bit. Everything you need is found in your perfect Father in heaven. Let me pray that for you right now. Father, oh, how you love us. God, for my brothers and sisters in Avon, here and online, Lord, I just pray in this moment that we would perceive and receive how great, how wide is your love for us, that you've lavished on us. Lord, where we've seen Christianity as behavior modification, today we trade it in for identity transformation. You've made us new creations in Christ. Will you now help us to believe who we are, to receive who we are? We open the deep wounds of our lives, Lord. May your grace and your love drip down through the sand. May your grace flood the broken areas of our lives and heal what no one and nothing else could heal. Lord, do this miracle for my brothers and sisters. Continue it in me. We pray it all through the power of Jesus and in his name, amen. Well, if today's episode encouraged you or helped you in any way, we would invite you to keep following Jesus with us. We send out a daily video text devotional. You can receive that and you can learn how to gather with us online or in person for our weekend services. All of that is available over at cp.news. That's the letter C, the letter P.news on your phone or desktop or tablet browser. Thanks again for joining us and please join me again next week for the Connection Point Podcast.